This is a People First Radio podcast. Grace Martin never got to meet her grandfather, John Gall. But she's been able to hear his voice a lot lately. That's thanks to a very big and very 80s legacy John left behind. That legacy, which we'll get to in a minute, is the inspiration behind Lucky Casanova. It's a one-woman show which Martin is performing at the Nanaimo Fringe Festival this week. While it's just her up on stage, the show is a family affair. Martin put it together with her mom, Allie Gall, and the voice of John. Allie Gall and Grace Martin met up with me this week at Black Rabbit Kitchen in Nanaimo to share the story behind the story. Your grandfather slash father, John Gall, Lucky Casanova, is the subject of your show at the Nanaimo Fringe. What what about your father inspired a play? Oh, oh I only wish that Grace had had a chance to meet my dad. He was, in my 50 years on this planet, absolutely one of a kind. Uh, he inspired this play because uh, a few years ago when my mom passed away, I found a Rubbermaid bin full of his things, which included cassette tapes he'd recorded of himself and sent all over the world. Many returned to sender because people don't always open their unsolicited mail. But in those tapes, it contained his philosophies, his musings on life, and the songs that he wrote. And he desperately wanted these songs to be heard and his thoughts on the world to be heard and to find some meaning and purpose. So uh, I started out writing a memoir and uh, may still be writing that memoir 10 years from now. Uh, but along the way, sharing what I'd written with my daughter, who's a professional actor, she's kind of taken and run with it and made it into a fringe show. And uh, I think my dad would be so proud. So you mentioned the tapes. If you go and see the show, uh, you'll get to, to hear some of the tapes. But Grace, could you give us an idea of, of what exactly is on these cassette tapes that your grandfather sent out into the world? Oh, my goodness. There's everything on there. The songs he wrote. Each tape was around 45 minutes of his thoughts and musings on conspiracy theories, politics, on the injustices he'd suffered. Um, but most of what he talked about was wanting people to hear and sing his songs and talked about what it meant for him to be a writer and an artist. Yeah, one of the things we hear in this show is this idea that, like, writers write to change the world. And, you know, when they tell writers they can't write, we're going to be in trouble. What, what are your reflections on, like, what was it like to, to hear this stuff and to find out about this stuff? Maybe, Ali... Did you know about these cassette tapes when they were being made? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, my dad considered this his full-time job. He would occasionally be employed in other areas. He's, he was a social worker. Uh, he was a used car salesman. And, uh, but most of the time, he was sitting at our kitchen table full-time, uh, watching much music, being inspired by anyone he could, he could see on TV, and writing to them. So every day when I came home from school... My dad would be there with his bottle of sake and uh, singing into a boombox, or he'd be entertaining whomever had shown up at the door that day. So in the 80s, it was still really common that someone would come and literally try to sell you an encyclopedia or sell you some spices or talk to you about their religion. They were always at my table and often long into the night talking about life 
And if no one was coming in on the door that day, then he just talked into the cassette tapes. So yes, I remembered them with every fiber of my being when I opened that Tupperware box and heard his voice 22 years later after he'd passed. Grace, what was that experience like for you to find out about these tapes? Or maybe you'd known about them, but to, to listen to them for the first time. Yeah, I'd heard, I'd grown up hearing stories from my mom about it, and she talked about the tapes. Um, and it was remarkable how when we found the Rubbermaid bin, most of the tapes still played. And it was um, a very emotional experience getting to hear my grandfather's voice. And there are these beautiful moments in the tapes where you can hear things like, uh, my mom's childhood dog flapping its little ears or the washer going in the background and it really brought me into the story and inspired me to work on it with my mom. You've got this play now. Uh, ostensibly, it's about these tapes and what's on the tapes, but you know, having seen it, maybe you could say it's really about a lot of more than that, uh, about family, about love. Can you tell me about maybe maybe some of the family dynamics that are that are in the show Lucky Casanova. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm an only child, and uh, I grew up in a house where my parents fought all the time. Um, and ironically, they were mostly fighting about Frank Sinatra and my dad's steadfast belief to the end of his days that Frank Sinatra had stolen all of his songs. He had many other strong, strong beliefs that he would... Um, scream and yell at the table that my mother would would refute. And so it was evidence thrown back and forth. Certainly an outsider would call them delusions to my dad. They were just the truth. And there I was, a little girl, listening to these wild and outrageous stories. Uh, and what was always interesting as a kid is that when you listen to my dad talk, Yes, his stories were wild and they were outrageous and they couldn't possibly be true, but sometimes they were because he lived this life on his own terms, um, completely unmedicated for, for his health issues, for his illness, uh, except for the bottles of sake and the whiskey that he drank. He was completely unmedicated. And with this incredible open heart where he just loved people, he sometimes had and truly lived experiences that were outrageous and wild and wonderful. And sometimes, um, sometimes those experiences weren't grounded in the same reality that my mom lived in. When I started writing the memoir, I really still, even as an adult, considered how fraught my parents' marriage was. I really thought of them as fighting all the time. And as I looked on those letters, the memoirs, the notes that my dad had written, the things he said into those tapes, I actually came to realize very viscerally the depth of their love. So as I wrote it, and as I'm still writing it, it really is a love story between the two of them that as a little kid was so hard to see, but as an adult wows me and, and gives me pause that these two people loved each other so deeply that um, they let each other be exactly who they were and loved each other unconditionally. What is the, what is the part of that, that that you want other people to take away from this show? What, what about this experience made you say, I really, I want to share this in such a public way? Hmm. That's such a good question. It started 
certainly, um, when I found the tapes, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to publish my dad's lyrics and they'll be published. They'll be out there in the world. And then, um, every one of those lyrics brought such memories. I thought these memories, this man, like I, I have to give it context. It needs that context. And then as I started doing some storytelling events myself and speaking about it, there was a lot of audience reaction I didn't expect. Um, some of the more peculiar parts of my childhood, um, maybe it weren't so peculiar. I've met person after person who just connected in such a real way to my dad's story, to my parents' story, to my story, um, that I thought I need to look for other ways to share more than just the lyrics. And, uh, and Grace has taken that and run with it. And we've added that piece around what does this mean to her? What does she do at 22 with this box full of memories, this heavy weight of legacy and love and stories and mental health and alcoholism and, and love at the heart of all of it? What does she do with that? So I've kind of just dumped it on her, and here she is. <laughs> well, I'm curious about that, Grace, uh, from your perspective, like even just between your mom and her parents, this is already such a family affair, let alone the fact that you two work together to, to turn this into a stage show. How has maybe the way you just think about family and your relationships to your family, how has that evolved in, in making this? Um, I'm very lucky that my mom and I get along really well, and we work very well together. But I did struggle a bit with like, why am I telling this story? What does this story mean to me? I'm just some random girl telling a story about my grandfather. Why am I doing this? What does it mean to me? And listening to my grandfather's voice and his stories and his songs, I really found this love for this grandfather who I never met. And I really felt connected to him in a way that I think only his songs and stories could connect to. It was definitely a very emotional experience hearing my grandfather's voice and finding the best way to carry out his legacy. And it really, it was a very interesting way to connect to someone I'd never met, but someone who I'd grown up hearing stories of. And it's it really I think kind of helped our relationship too. We have a great relationship, but getting to hear the stories of your father, I think connected us even more. <laughs> You're tuned into People First Radio. This week, we're exploring some of the personal stories behind shows at the Nanaimo Fringe. One of those belongs to John Gall. Back in the 1980s, he would make 45 minute long cassette tapes filled with original song lyrics, philosophy, and the odd conspiracy theory. He'd send them out in the mail to various singers and other folks all over the world. Many of those tapes were returned to sender. A few years ago, they made their way in a big Rubbermaid bin to John's daughter, Allie Gall. Allie worked with her daughter, Grace Martin, who's an actor, to bring this family story to the stage in a show called Lucky Casanova. We're hearing a conversation I had with Ali Gall and Grace Martin earlier this week at Black Rabbit Kitchen in Nanaimo. And there are certainly a lot of fun stories that are in this, this hour-long performance. So we talked off the top about the tapes, and your dad sent all of these cassette tapes off to various uh, various people. And sometimes he, he heard back from people, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, he sure did. Um, many of the people said positive things and suggested that perhaps he shouldn't sing into the tapes, which was a very fair comment. I think anyone hearing it is is going to understand that my dad was not a singer. He didn't write the music. He just wrote the lyrics, and some of the lyrics are beautiful. And he would have been the first one to tell you that. But he was not really a man to take sound advice, so he kept singing anyways because he felt that the words alone couldn't carry carry the lyricism of it. Um, some quite famous people wrote back, and one of them was John Gou- or, sorry, Robert Goulet, who he formed a very deep friendship with. And they talked on the phone every Friday afternoon. And I have in my possession a large collection of notes written from hotels all across North America when Robert Goulet was touring with the Fantastics and the remount of South Pacific. Many of them I will never share. They are about, they're about Robert's life and family and divorce and, you know, the difficulties of people writing biographies about him and they connected as two artists and two friends. It was interesting after the show hearing um, you both have different maybe cultural touchstones for <laughs> what Robert Goulet is in. Can you yeah. share those for folks who, who need a refresher on, on Robert Goulet? Oh, for sure. Well, for me, Robert Goulet was the voice and this big, big, beautiful voice that was a crooner, sort of a competitor to Frank Sinatra, who, you know, my dad would not approve of, but oh, (laughs) Robert Goulet, that was the voice. So remounted all these incredible Broadway musicals, and that's what I think of him as. And for you... I googled who Robert Goulet was, and I was excited to find out he was the singing voice of Wheezy in Toy Story 2. (laughs) He's had cameos (laughs) right into his last years in lots of great pop culture references that younger folks will know, but he was definitely a household name when I was growing up. Um, But yeah, Mars Attacks, he has a great cameo in there. Uh, One of the guys who was in the show, who came to see the show was like, I'm sure I saw him on the love boat. So yeah, (laughs) and Fantasy Island, (laughs) sort of a great character actor as well. Uh, But for me, he will always be the crooner of tunes that we liked in our household. (laughs) Yeah, so you must have been a kid when when this kind of correspondence was going on. Were you in on it at all? Did you ever, I don't know, talk on the phone? Oh, absolutely. I was off often the one who picked up the phone on Friday afternoon and it, it was always like, well, hello, Ellie. It's uh, Mr. Johnny Gall there. It's Robert Goulet calling. <laughs> <laughs> and he was such a lovely man. He'd often ask me about, um, oh, I, I, you know, I heard you took up golfing this week in your school gym class. He, he uh, definitely was just a gentleman in every way. And in the show, you talk about um, your dad didn't like the C word and um, a lot of his experiences in the hospital for, for various different things. What have you taken away about just the medical system, maybe? Your mom was a nurse as well sure. from the experience with your with your parents. Sure. Well, and I grew up as a little girl uh, having many, many surgeries in the hospital And uh, I share one story, one of my earliest memories actually, of being in the hospital and sneaking out to see my mom nursing on a ward and seeing my dad in the cardiac care unit. Um, If you can imagine a man who thinks the entire medical system is corrupt, that ophthalmologists and cardiologists and psychiatrists are all in league with the Rockefellers and they're all trying to make you see and experience the world the way they want you to experience them, 
falling in love with the nursiest of nurses that ever did nurse. Um, You can imagine how fraught the relationship was. Certainly, they were both very well known. Uh, My mom in her field as an incredible nurse and, uh, and my dad as being a rather difficult patient at times. And then myself as a little kid that knew the hospital hallways better than the hallways of her elementary school. We had many people who who knew us in the in the medical system, and I absolutely resisted that as a field whatsoever. Um, but somehow I do talk about how I accidentally fell into a career of healthcare as well. And in this career, oh, I am so I'm not a nurse or a doctor, but I do have the privilege of and the honor of working with people in some of their most challenging moments. And every day I I get to hear the same arguments my parents had, which is, you know, take my help, listen to the doctor, take your medication and leave me be. I want to live my life my way. And I truly believe it is the life lessons that my parents taught me, their demonstration of love that allows me to walk into those situations and walk through those halls and allow people the dignity to be who they are. And uh, I, I am so incredibly grateful to them for that. It did take me until I was an adult to see their relationship with such a depth of love that they had. But long before I had that awareness of that love, those life lessons that they ingrained on my heart every day of my childhood, that we are who we are. And we can argue and we can fight, but at the end of the day, um, someone else's choices aren't mine to make. Those things, um, well, I use those lessons every day. You're listening to People First Radio. I'm Joe Pugh and I'm speaking with Allie Gall and her daughter, Grace Martin. They're the team behind Lucky Casanova, a show that's playing at the Nanaimo Fringe this week. It tells the story of John Gall, Ali's dad and Grace's granddad. Grace, I'm curious about, about how you took all of this material. Presumably there were a lot of tapes, uh, a lot of stuff you could play from the tapes. How did you turn all of that into one hour for the Fringe? It was a it was a difficult task. <laughs> we spent several hours just combing through tapes, um, but it was really a labor of love. And I do remember texting her at one point, "The show's too long. I'm going to need to cut things, and I need you to be okay with that." <laughs> we cut <laughs> maybe two or three songs in there, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we can really thank Grace for keeping this. And she's actually <laughs> kept it very tight. We had all all fringe shows have to be under an hour. It's a hard rule in any fringe you're going to because uh, every festival wants you to get out there and you should see as many shows as you possibly can. And there's somebody coming in right after you. Uh, so I kind of begged in there when we submitted it, that's going to be as long as it possibly can. We said <laughs> it's going to be 55 minutes. But Grace has actually kept it really tight, to yeah. just under 50. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, if it was me, there's yeah, no way this was. would get on the stage. <laughs> they just wouldn't. What was the response to, to getting that message of, like, we, we're going to have to cut stuff, Mom? Oh, I laughed out loud. <laughs> it, uh, and she's right. And, and that, that friction between us is a positive Healthy one. friction. Healthy friction. <laughs> we know our roles, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, uh, I knew 
going in that she was going to be the one that had to cut this down. Yeah. And I'm sure she knew it was the opposite my way. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> that was something we had a lot of conversations about, making sure each moment, each song, each story is really serving the plot and pushing the plot forward. So it's, you might be listening to a tape for a few minutes, but it's still pushing it forward and it's exciting and interesting and you're still engaged with the show the whole time. Um, That's our hope, yeah. Yeah, we listened to so many tapes so many times. I had to figure out how to use a a cassette. That was an exciting moment. There's two sides to it. (laughs) I kept messing that up. It's so confusing because sometimes you press the button one way to make it go forward, sometimes it's the other way. It's the true. 80s must have been really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, it's so interesting to me how, how quickly, you know, old technology kind of hangs on for a while and a while and a while, and then it just goes right off a cliff. Like, <laughs> when I was, I don't know, driving around in high school, you know, my car still had a cassette tape player. Yeah. It was maybe a decade ago, but now it's just, it's all gone. It's all gone. And the first, we had, on our final cut, we had lined up a great opener from my dad, back to back with a great song and we we're like oh fantastic and then just as we went to record it the tape didn't just unravel it absolutely snapped in half oh and our tape recorder broke for a little bit and <laughs> she needed to go like hang out in the ocean take a break while I like <laughs> took all the little pieces out fixing it <laughs> but I fixed it and it was fine and it turned out that I had accidentally recorded it a different time, because I was that's sweet September, true. and she was very excited about that. That's true. <laughs> Did you have to, uh, have to like put the pen there. in and do the yes. twist? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You discovered that trick. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any, I don't know, any teases, any things you'd, you'd say, any moments in the show that stand out to you that you'd like to, to share with folks to, to entice them to come on down this weekend? There's so many fun moments. Oh, my goodness. There are so many fun moments. I hope people... Um, I hope people give it a try. And, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time with our marketing and promo kind of pieces. I think if we did this again, we'd want to highlight that there's some real levity to this show. Um, Yes, there's some thoughts. Someone who came to see it, I just ran into them on the way here, and they said, that show made me feel things for days. Uh, (laughs) Which I think when people sort of look at what's out there in the program guide, they come in expecting something with a a bit of heaviness. And there certainly is that. There's family. Family's a big thing. Um, The Ribbon Made Bin is really heavy, genuinely. (laughs) Also, literally. But I hope that people see that there's... There's some lightness and humor. My dad was hysterically funny. Yeah, Yeah, there's some real fun in the show and some lightness and some really funny moments. Um, There's a moment with the dictionary where (laughs) if you want a new last name, sit in the front. (laughs) Such a riot every time. It's this little game we used to play when I was growing up. It's so much fun. and there are some touching moments too. It's, I've had some great conversations with people after the show where people have like come up and said, thank you for doing this show. And people have come up with questions wanting to know more about, uh, about my grandfather's story. And I love that. I don't think we expected that. The Fringe Festival is so fun. Every Fringe we've been to in different cities 
and this is our first time with this show, but we've we've been, oh, Grace, I always say I, I couldn't find a friend that loved theater as much as me, so I had to <laughs> give birth to my daughter. I've been dragging her to French festivals all over since she was very, very little. I haven't seen a show, and I think this is a little bit magic. I like to think that my dad has a little something to do with this, where people, they, they plot at the end, and then they just stay seated. Like, they're not ready to go. <laughs> they just want to keep talking. And I, I feel like that's, that's the spirit of my dad. That's the spirit of my dad where you, someone would knock on the door because they're selling chocolate-covered almonds and they didn't leave for another six hours. They just wanted to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I like to think there's just a little bit of that, that spirit. Anything else you'd want people to know about this show? I just really want to say thank you yes. to everyone that's come so far. It, um, it is such a dream come true of my dad's to know that people are listening. He has a, he left a Rubbermaid bin full of envelopes that were never opened, but he put time and effort into every one of those. And all he really wanted was for them to be heard. Also to make a million dollars but mostly just for them to be heard. And I like to think that now, 30-something years later, he's starting to be heard. So it is, uh, it really is a privilege to perform this, although I'm now in the audience. I've handed it over to Grace. <laughs> you are forced to hear my voice because I am recorded in the show, just like my father was. Um, but it really is, it really is a thanks the two of us have had a lot of fun putting this together. Um, we both feel kind of a weight of legacy, like what the heck do we do with this incredible man's work? But when it gets back to the heart of what did he want done with it, he wanted it heard. So thank you to everyone who comes to listen. That's his dream come true. Well, Ali, Grace, thanks to both of you for, for taking the time to sit down with me and chat about the show. Thank, thank you. you. Ali Gall and Grace Martin sharing the story of their father-slash-grandfather, John Gall. You can see that story on stage in Lucky Casanova, playing this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Port Theatre as part of the Nanaimo Fringe Festival. People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners. 